You're listening to the City Church Downtown Podcast. Now here's Doug Robbins. In case you're new, this week we started this series last week called Can I Get a Witness? And I need to get some of you up to speed in case you weren't here last week. We watched this uh, episode of Seinfeld, okay, like you do, you know, at church. You watch Seinfeld, and it was the particular episode where Elaine finds out that her boyfriend David Putty is a Christian. And she says, David, uh, I'm not a Christian, so is that a problem for you? that I'm not a Christian and you are a Christian. He said, well, it's not a problem for me. I'm not the one that's going to hell, right? And she gets mad at him and Elaine says, you know, um, I am not going to hell, but if I was going to hell, you should care that I'm going to hell and you should try and convert me. And I know that for those of you that have perhaps come uh, with a Christian friend or maybe you're not a Christian yet, you're, you're, you're thinking about it. Maybe you feel like Elaine, maybe you don't. Um, and, and some of you would say, you know, I don't like the idea of people trying to proselytize others. That seems so narrow-minded in that, that you think you can convert people. Well, we, we want to be very straightforward about it here in that we are trying to convert you. We want everyone to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin and come into love relationship with him. And that's what we call being a witness. And let's be honest, even atheists are trying to convert people to their point of view, right? So um, we're all trying to convert someone to something. And some of you are a lot more passionate about your phone than you are your spirituality. So you're like, no, you should have an Android. And others would say, no, you should have an iPhone. And some people are like, no, it's all about Star Trek. And others, no, it's Star Wars, right? And then some of you are about your sports team, right? And so some of you are all about, it's got to be the Spurs. And then the Spurs, right? You know, because, you know, that's the, uh, my bias is kind of uh, coming out there. Uh, but this is called being a witness. And we're all a witness for something. Even if you think that you shouldn't convert people, you're trying to convert people to the idea that they shouldn't try and be converting other people, right? So we're all doing it. And we see what we're trying to be witnesses for in Acts chapter 1 8. And it says there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my, say it with me, witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And remember those of you who were here last week, I told you the story about how I kind of became a witness. And it was after God took away my foosball table that had a bunch of marijuana inside it, right? And if you heard this story, you heard that my parents like donated my my marijuana-filled foosball table to a bunch of Baptists, you know. And so that's why that particular Baptist church has all these potlucks, because all those Baptists had the munchies right after they got into my foosball table. But after that experience, I started coming back and telling my friends um, about Christ. And, you know, that's a small sacrifice in compared to what the early church did, because the word for witness there is martyrs, and it's the word from which we get our word martyrs. These are people that are willing to literally lay down their lives for the truth of the gospel to give the love of God to other people, they're even willing to die for it. And I believe that according to the scriptures, the eyes of the Lord are searching all throughout the earth, looking for one man or one woman who's willing to lay down their life to be a witness, to share Christ with those that are in your workplace, or to share Christ with those that are in your school or your neighborhood or your familia or your just surroundings, whoever you're around that you have influence with. Will you become a witness? And that begs the question of God, can I get a witness? Can I get one? Anywhere, anyone that will put themselves out there. And here's what will happen is that if you make that decision to become a witness, you will be challenged by Peter. And I'm going to show you his challenge in 1 Peter 3.15. Look at it with me on screen or on your phone or however, whatever form in which you have your Bible. 
Um, but in your hearts, he says, revere Christ as Lord. And so one of the things you understand is that when you've invited Christ into your life, he is Lord. He doesn't take your side or someone else's side. He takes over. I mean, he runs things. It's what he does. And uh, when we come to faith in Christ and b- decide to be witnesses, um, we submit ourselves to him as Lord. But look at the next sentence. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then he tells us kind of the attitude we should have in the last sentence of the text. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. And so what Peter is saying to us here in this text is that our faith is based on reasons, not just feelings. It's not some blind leap into the darkness. And you know what happens in our culture is that some people try and position Christianity as this group of ignorant people who uh, really just check their brains at the door. But what we're saying here at City Church is don't check your brains at the door. Bring to God your whole life, your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions, and your intellect, right? We love God with our minds, you know? And um, that's why the, the idea that Christians are a bunch of ignorant people that check their brains at the door, doesn't hold water. Like the first 123 colleges and universities, including the Ivy League schools, that were started in this country were started by Christian people to train pastors to be witnesses, to lay down their lives for the gospel of Christ. And I understand that some of you, many of you perhaps, have legitimate questions in your mind about belief in a God or belief that, um, you know, Jesus is the Son of God or that the Bible can be trusted and all that. And I totally understand those questions. And what we want you to know here is that God welcomes and invites your questions. You know that if God, if he's real, he can handle your questions. But here's what a lot of people do. I've watched a lot of people, they love being a spiritual seeker because then you don't have to have an answer ever. But what if God gives you an answer Do you have the courage and the boldness to receive the answer and not just stay in what's comfortable, and that is perpetual seeker mode? Some people are like the dog that's chasing the car. What do you do when you catch the car? What if God gives you an answer? Do you have the courage to receive it? You know, there's a guy that I would say is the greatest authority on evidence that this country has ever produced. And he's in the legal field, a guy named Simon Greenleaf of Harvard Law School. And he examined the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and was compelled to believe. And I truly believe that if Simon Greenleaf were standing before all of us today, he would submit this idea to us that faith is a solid step, not a blind leap, right? It's a solid step, not a blind leap. And so I'm going to repeat that one big idea with you. And when I point to you, I want you to say the words in there, solid step, and then I'll complete the big idea. Now, if you're new here, understand, I'll just keep doing it all day long until everybody does it with the further fervor that I feel is appropriate to this big idea. Okay, we're ready to do this. When I point to you, you know what to say, right? You're going to say uh, the word solid step. Ready? Here we go. Faith is a boom shakalaka, not a flying leap. Okay, that's what it is. So uh, you, you really want to base your eternity on a flying leap in the dark? That doesn't make sense, does it? Let's think through uh, what we believe. And my objective today is to give you some solid reasons to believe. And uh, I hope to affirm the faith that some of you already have. I hope, to help, uh, I hope to help some of you who are spiritual investigators to see that you can trust God 
um, to step uh, toward him in faith. And then I hope to equip some of you so that you can speak intelligently within uh, conversations that you have with your friends that are considering faith in Christ. And so one of the things that you have to understand about the way we design our services is that some of our services are designed to be more inspirational and some services are designed to be more informational. You know what I'm saying? So those of you that are really feelers, can my feelers raise your hands just for a minute? You're a deeply feeling person. I mean, you're passionate about life. Okay, we got few feelers here, and then you're so passionate about life. I mean, you're like, hey, I watch one of those Hallmark card commercials on TV, and I just start crying, man. <laughs> so then others of you, you, you like feelers, you like the inspirational services, right? But then others of you like the information, like uh, you're, you're the thinkers. Can the thinkers raise your hands just for, for a minute? A bunch of you are like, yeah, the feelers, they're so shallow. They're all foam and no root beer. They have no information. They don't know anything. Okay, don't get too uppity, man, because, you know, the feelers think you're boring, okay? They, they really... <laughs> think you're boring, and then now you're thinking of reasons that, um, you know, that they're not very good, and they're, they're not very smart, right? You're thinking that right now. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking all about it. Um, but this service today is more of an informational service, and so feelers, can you hang with me through this, man? I mean, it's like, um, uh, you're not just a feeler. I mean, you do have a brain that God has given you, you know, and those that are thinkers aren't just thinkers. We have emotions too, don't we? But the first solid step I want to show you is the step of design the step of design. And this is the, the thought that everywhere in creation and nature that you see a design, there must be a designer. There's no design, uh, the, there's no design where there's not someone who designed it. So if you look at Romans 1, 18, uh, Paul tells us there, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made or what has been designed so that men are without excuse. So if we pulled out our cell phones and we looked at those, we see that there's a design to that, right? There's a design to each app and each part of the device and we know that someone designed that phone. If you look at a snowflake, we're in South Texas, okay, a snow. It's this white stuff that in other parts of the country, it falls from the sky. It's the most amazing thing. And some of you grew up in those parts of the world uh, where you saw snow. And if you got a magnifying glass and you look at a snowflake, it's designed like an artist created it. Therefore, there must be a designer. If you look at a leaf, it's got a design in each leaf, doesn't it? If you look at your own eyeball in the mirror, you'll see a design. It's a very complex part of your anatomy. I not only look at my eyes and see the complexity there, but I know that only God can count the number of my hairs in my eyebrows uh, to know uh, what's going on there. And he has each one numbered. But you know, this guy helped me make sense of this idea of design. Um, when I heard this story about a manufacturer of cutlery, um, he was considering the wonders of the stars and planets, their system in order. And then he concluded, it takes a person in our factory about two days to learn to put the 17 parts of a meat chopper together. And it may be that these millions of worlds just balance together so wonderfully in space. It may be that a billion years of tumbling about finally arrange them in order. But this I know, 
you can shake the 17 parts of a meat chopper together in a box for 17 billion years and you'll never get a meat chopper. Isn't that the truth? It's like there's just too much design and order within the creation that you and I can observe. So if we step on the faith step of design, it's a solid step, not a blind leap. But the next step I want to show you is the step of prophecy, in particular, Bible prophecy. Now we're getting a bit more specific about God. We're not just saying belief that there's a God out there, but we're talking about the place from which we can find revelation about the true God. Um, You know, an interesting thing uh, about Bible prophecy is it's very specific. You've heard of Nostradamus and others who have made predictions within our culture, but you know, if you guess it's going to be seven o'clock, you're going to be right two times in a day, aren't you? And we're not talking about that kind of vague predictions, but we're talking about very precise predictions. And one of the things you have to understand about the Bible is that it's actually um, broken up in two sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The Old Testament was established as a book 400 years before the life of Jesus happened and the events that we have in our New Testament part of the Bible. Does that make sense? And that's significant to uh, what I'm about to explain to you. So this book, the Old Testament, was already established and it made over 400 predictions that would come true in one man about the Messiah. And I'm just going to roll through 10 of those because we don't have time to deal with uh, all Uh, 400 of them, nor do we have time to deal with all 48 of the major prophecies about Jesus. But let me just show you a few. It was predicted that he would be a descendant of Abraham, that he would be from the tribe of Judah. Both things came true, and he could not have possibly been in control of what tribe he would be born to. It was predicted that he would speak in parables, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that his hands and his feet would be pierced at his crucifixion, that when he died, his bones would not be broken, that he would be spit upon and his beard plucked in the midst of his crucifixion, that soldiers would gamble for his clothes and that he would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Most of these predictions were ones that he couldn't have possibly controlled to try and make himself look like the Messiah. And what are the numeric chances of all this, all these predictions being made, just a coincidence? So to illustrate this, I need um, a volunteer from our audience here, and um, if you know me personally right now, you're in really bad shape of me potentially embarrassing you. Okay, Becky, why don't you volunteer for me, all right? Okay, so Becky, would you go ahead and stand up, and uh, uh, this is Becky, by the way, and Becky, would you just kind of tell us, um, yeah, give it up for Becky, she's pretty cool. Okay, so would you just kind of tell us real quickly, um, what city, in, in which city were you born? Right here in San Antonio. She's San Antonio, born and bred. Okay, and then where did you go to middle school, Becky? Stevenson Middle School. And then where'd you go to high school? John Marshall High School, Rams, right? And so um, there's that. Okay, so would you guys join me in thanking Becky for telling us a little bit about her life and thanking her for helping us out there? You can sit down back, Becky, now that you're terrified. Okay, so uh, it's over now. (laughs) Becky, you can rest. What if? 400 years before Becky was ever born, there was a book that came out that made predictions about her life before she was ever born that would tell that she would be born in San Antonio, 
that she would go to Stevenson Middle School, that she would graduate from John Marshall High School, and then 45 other predictions about her life. You think it's just a coincidence? You know the numeric chances of that just being a coincidence are 1 in 10 to the power of 157, according to a mathematician named Peter Stone. And that are, that's the numeric chances of all the prophecies about Jesus, or just the 48 major ones, just being a coincidence. Listen, when you believe the truths of Bible prophecy, it's a solid step. It's not a blind leap of faith, a flying leap. So look at this next step. It's the step of the New Testament. Now, what's common in our culture today is to call into question the validity of the New Testament gospels that we have in the Bible. And what's driving it is uh, people need ratings to um, sell advertising time for documentary shows on cable television and stuff like that. But if you uh, really look at the best scholarship on this, there's a guy named Sir William Ramsey who is clearly uh, the most, one of the most influential archaeologists in the history of the United States of America. And he was converted through the surprise realization of the precise historical accuracy of the Gospel of Luke. And then he wrote this really amazing book called The Bearing of Recent Discovery on the Trustworthiness of the New Testament. And in this book, he said Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. And then he added later on in this book, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. So when you read through the Gospels in the New Testament of the Bible, you're stepping on a solid step. It is not a blind leap into the darkness. But let me show you another one, the Old Testament of our Bible. We've already talked about the Old Testament just a little bit, but here's the perception in our culture. The perception is, is that all these Old Testament stories were just passed down by a bunch of old men with beards sitting around a campfire smoking peyote, right? It's just all oral transition and word of mouth, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the Jewish scribes who kept these scrolls, passed these things down with much care. The Old Testament was copied with such precision that when an entire scroll had been hand copied, one letter at a time, if one mistake was made, the entire scroll was discarded and thrown away. Every letter of every page and book was counted and compared against the original, and the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in a book was counted and compared against the original. Furthermore, the middle letter of the first five books of the Bible called Torah, as well as the middle letter in the entire Old Testament were computed and indicated in the text. And if one of these calculations was off, they would discard that copy or that scroll. Does that sound like a bunch of old dudes sitting around a fire telling stories? No. This book was preserved for you and I. That's why the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 8 of his book, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. And Jesus repeated this sentiment when he said in Matthew 5, 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law or Torah until everything is accomplished. And this point was punctuated for me when I heard a story by uh, Chuck Workman who tells of this battleship captain named Captain Jeremiah Smith 
and he was navigating his battleship through some cold, dark waters when he saw the light of another approaching vessel. And so because of this, they get on the radio, and they call the other vessel on the radio, and he says, this is Captain Jeremiah Smith. Will you please alter your course 10 degrees to the south? Over. And then the transmission comes back from the other vessel, and the transmission says, uh, sir, would you please adjust your course 10 degrees to the south? Well, Captain Smith is not used to people talking back to him. He's used to giving orders, right, not taking orders. And so he gets back on the radio and with a lot more machismo says, this is Captain Jeremiah Smith. Please alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a battleship. As if to say, look, it's about to go down. I'm about to open up a can on you if you don't alter your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the transmission comes back. I am private Thomas Johnson, and sir, with all due respect, please alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a lighthouse. (laughs) Isn't that exactly what we do? I spent a lot of my life trying to get the lighthouse to move. But this isn't going to change. It's like water without it, we die, right? It was true then and it's true now. And this book is a solid step. It's not a flying leap. And another reason that I believe personally, I mean, we could go on and on. I could talk to you for a month on all these reasons to believe. But the one that gets me the most is that God changed my heart And I have a little bit of a glimpse of the wickedness of my own heart, but he's changed my heart and he's given me a purpose to live. Man, before I submitted my life to Christ, my life was, I felt like an espresso machine trying to pop popcorn. I didn't understand my purpose and why God had created me. And today I know who I am and I know what I'm for. You know, many in our world have embraced a philosophy of life that says there is no such thing as meaning. All is meaninglessness, and there is no purpose for anything. One of the philosophers that espouses this view is Aldous Huxley, and I appreciate him because he was forthright enough to say why he came to this position of meaninglessness. And he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had not and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. You see what he's getting at there? He's saying, you know, I kind of had to come to a place where I believe that there's no no such thing as meaning and purpose because that afforded me the ability to do what I want to do. See what he's saying? I just want to do what I want to do, and I don't care what God says about it. I need for the world to be meaningless so I can do what I want to do, and I can create my own reality. And you know, some of you think after reading a couple of books or maybe sitting through a college philosophy class, you think you've been objective. 
But I think reality is a little more complex than just that. I've watched people in my generation and generations previous to me and people who are younger than me go through a couple of college classes or read a couple of books and think to themselves, I've been objective about God. But the fact of the matter is many people haven't been really objective with the data, but really just want God to change the lighthouse so I can have sex with who I want to have sex with and I can do whatever I want to do. I don't want someone telling me what to do. And I'm telling you, if you do that, you're like I was, an espresso machine trying to pop popcorn. You know, one of the problems with this meaninglessness view is that means nothing is wrong. Murder is not wrong. How can you say it's wrong? Oppression is not always wrong. What is the basis for saying anything is wrong? And many subscribe to the philosophies of Sartre. You know, John Paul Sartre, you may or may not know who he is. Maybe you'll read about him in college someday, or maybe you've read a book or heard of him. But he said, it is forbidden to forbid. But if that's true, how can you forbid me to forbid? If forbidding is wrong, you've insisted that your view of truth is, is, is right. You've done the very thing you've asked me not to do. And that was certainly the case with famous atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare, who was probably at one time the most popular atheist in our country, her popularity rose as she was involved in the court case in which prayer was taken out of the public schools in the United States. And one night, it's like raining stuff around here. <laughs> God's bringing the design of a snowflake right to the cameo theater <laughs> as I teach. But one night, Madeline Murray O'Hare went out into a rainstorm, a thunderstorm, lightning. She was big pregnant at the time. And she wanted to prove that there was no God. And so she shook her fist and cursed God and cussed him out and said, if there's really a God, just strike me dead right now. And then she laughed and told those who were looking on, see, there's no God. I just proved God wrong. <laughs> well, those of us that have read the Bible and understand how God operates, she didn't prove that God doesn't exist. She just proved that he's patient because her story played out. And oftentimes you find out about the reality of God as your story plays out. Let me tell you about her story and how that worked out for her. The very child that she was pregnant with when she cursed God was born and grew up and did not subscribe to her philosophy of life. But he chose to believe. And to this day, he is a witness for Jesus Christ. James Murray O'Hare. And furthermore, her story continued to play out. Her story of believing that all is meaninglessness. When a couple of men kidnapped her and one of her colleagues, actually brought them here to Texas and out in the hill country of Texas in Campwood, Texas, brutally murdered them. And you know why they murdered her? Because they subscribed to her philosophy of life that all is meaningless. And you can't tell me it's wrong for me to kill you. Because there's no right. And there's no wrong. You know, Blaise Pascal, who's the brilliant French mathematician, philosopher, and scientist, said that there's enough evidence for the Christian faith to convince anyone who is not set against it. But there's not enough evidence to bring anyone into God's kingdom who will not come. 
even those of us who are more on the thinking side of things, there's so much more to us than just our thoughts. We're not just thinkers, we're not just feelers, but we're made to be lovers and to experience love, you know? And I remember one time I was in Atlanta with a group of colleagues for the company that I used to work for, and uh, we were talking about spirituality, and because, you know, everyone at the table knew that I had been a minister um, prior to working in the, the marketplace, that they wanted to talk about God, you know? And one of my friends that was sitting right across the table from me during that conversation, she's a brilliant woman, put herself through school, earned her MBA degree. She earned a lot of money. Um, to this day, I, I just really think so highly of her. But that night, she sat there at that table and explained to all of us why she does not believe in God. And she quoted numerous books that she had done in her research to um, inform her view of God's non-existence. But for some reason, this doesn't always happen to me. In fact, it seldom happens to me. I just knew something about her in those moments. And I looked her in the eyes across that table and I said, you know, the reason you don't believe is not because of all of what you just said, but someone who represented God in your life hurt you. And this very brilliant woman just had a tear roll down her cheek, indicating the truth of what I had just said. And I think the reality for many of us is that many have chosen not to believe because of a wound, not wisdom. And I'm here to tell you today that whoever wounded you, who represented God to you, that's not God. Because God is a lover and he's perfect. And you were designed not just to think and feel, but you were designed to be loved by someone perfect. That's when you get the coffee in the espresso machine and you experience what you were truly created for. You know, there's no reason why you couldn't just pray and receive him right now. And one of the things you got to understand is that you don't clean your life up to get yourself worthy to come into the presence of God and be his child. A bunch of us around here who are Christ followers, like we're trying, and we would say, eh, we're jacked up, okay? Uh, we've had problems in our life, and what happens is, is when we come to Christ, then he changes us, right? You don't change yourself and then come. You come to him, and then he graciously, tenderly, gently, over time, helps us to change and evolve into the beautiful masterpieces of art that he designed us to be. And so I figure we could just pray right now. Would you like to do that? Yes. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And let's close our eyes before God. And look, he can read your thoughts and stuff. So you don't even have to say it out loud because this is kind of between you and God. If you've never believed and you'd like to right now today, I just want you to talk to him in your mind. And realize there's no magical prayer in the Bible. This is just the attitude of your heart right now. Maybe you'd say something like this. Hey, look, God, I know I've sinned. And I've totally screwed things up. But God, the best I get it right now, I choose to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And God, I'm not like trying to get myself all cleaned up so I can be worthy of you. I'll never be worthy of you. But God, I come to you that you would please change me Please work in my life. Forgive me of my sin. And God, by faith, I become your child right now through the cross of Jesus. 
hey, if you just prayed that, I think God wants you to know that he just is like over the top in love with you. Man, he has directed every step of your life and your path to draw you to this moment right now where he could draw you into his eternal family. And as we continue in prayer, this next prayer is for those of us that call ourselves Christ followers. It's the prayer of the witness. And don't pray it if you don't mean it. But it's like we're praying, God, I want to lay down my life for your truth. I want to be a martyrist. I want to be a witness who's willing to lay down my life for the gospel. And it even means my death. That's how much I want to care about those around me that don't know you. I'm willing to put myself out there. And God, I don't know everything there is to know about the Bible and philosophy and all that stuff. God, but I want you to give me by your spirit the power to do it. Because God, the truth is I've been a big wuss. But now I want to have the power of the Holy Spirit upon my life. So I have the courage to initiate the conversations that are important, that are about eternity and destiny. And so would you give me the power and the courage to initiate those conversations with the people that I know and love that I come in contact with? And God, please help me with the wisdom to know what to say and the stuff not to say so I don't screw it up, Lord, because I don't want to misrepresent you. So God, I'm going to put myself out there and would you please use someone just like me? God, I, I just keep hearing all these thoughts all the time of how unworthy I am. And, you know, it's like the devil is speaking in my ear, telling me how much I suck. But, Lord, I just pray that you would show me who I truly am in Christ and that you're empowering me now to leave this space and to be like a blowtorch of light for the kingdom. So, Father, that's our prayer. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit citychurchdowntown.com.